be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the fourth overall episode of Twin Peaks, Episode 3, often known, depending where you look, as Season 1, Episode 4, Episode 4, or what the German regionalization team named Rest in Pain. I'm your host, John. Episode 3 begins with Audrey romantically ambushing Cooper at the Great Northern, but he gets information out of her instead before he recounts his Red Room dream to Harry and Lucy. Albert and Doc Hayward fight in the morgue over Laura Palmer's autopsy. Leland is presented with a newly arrived Maddie. Bobby gets lectured by his dad, and everyone gets ready to attend Laura's funeral. Said funeral goes well right up until Bobby implicates the whole town in Laura's death, and then he fights James while Leland dives on a casket. Afterward, at the double R, Cooper makes Ed lose a bet before learning about a sting on Jacques Renault, the evil in the woods, and the existence of the Bookhouse Boys. At the Bookhouse, they question Jacques' secretly apprehended brother Bernard, while Jacques calls Leo for a lift into Canada. At the Blue Pine Lodge, Josie tells Harry that Ben and Catherine are out to get her, but only finds one ledger. Catherine stashes the other in a new hiding place, while Harry and Josie snog. Cooper and Hawk talk about the soul at the Great Northern before they take a melting-down Leland home, and the episode ends on a red light in the dark. So, taking into consideration all of Twin Peaks up through the final dossier, so all 2017 all 1990 and every year in between. What questions are we left with? How is Cooper's investigative technique best suited to the town like Twin Peaks? What things are surfacing in Twin Peaks? What are the two Twin Peaks revealing themselves? What kind of presence is Laura Palmer? And who is Bobby Briggs? So before we look at things like how the in-universe mythology is affected, we are going to look into the behind-the-scenes stuff, the production history. Episode 3 was written by Harley Payton and directed by Tina Rathborn. So the first thing you should notice is that Mark Frost and David Lynch are not present in either one of these credits for the first time in the whole series. Tina Rathborn got involved because she directed uh, Isabella Rossellini and David Lynch before in Zelly and Me. That's how she was on Lynch's radar to get the job. Twin Peaks was her first foray into working on other people's stories and her work uh, and her first work in television too. 
Um, she said on the artisan DVD commentaries that she felt like we were making a feature film on a tiny budget, but still not handed stock characters room to explore. And that's one thing that the writers and the directors all appreciated about Twin Peaks. As far as uh, Rathborn's outlook on this, uh, she basically thinks because of so much mystery, on some level, anything goes. And that really did leave her a whole bunch of room to explore. And yet still, maybe only four things needed to be changed after she finished um, that, um, you know, Lynch and Frost, they go through it afterward and um, give the director notes. And she didn't have to have too much change, which is great. Um, and also she points out that there's no ABC presence at all. So they really were making this in a vacuum, kind of off to the side of what regular network television was doing. Another interesting detail about production is, and she didn't say that she did this or not, um, but uh, Rathborn said the directors were allowed to change the scene order, which is interesting. And that will come up later. I can guarantee you that one. Um, it ends up adding to the uh, in-universe mythology sometimes, too. It's kind of it's kind of neat how these um, happy little production accidents can um, make make the bigger picture of Twin Peaks something. So Rathborn got the script right around the time that she was leaving for Los Angeles. Um, the one of the things she absolutely loved about this and about the pilot and everything was the banal wholesomeness that's played off by all the strangeness. And she says that moving from young to hardy boys and back, it's delicious. And I think that pretty much comes through. She had a really good handle on the tone. As far as the writer, Harley Payton, he was friends with Mark Frost through a fantasy baseball league. And at this point, He'd only been credited for the screenplay of Less Than Zero, but that didn't matter to Frost, and it didn't matter to the voters who ended up nominating this episode for an Emmy later. Only this and the pilot were given that honor. Per Twin Peaks Unwrapped, both the book and the podcast by Ben Durant and Brian Kazaska, Frost called Peyton to see the screening of the pilot at the Director's Guild. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Peyton told Frost right afterwards, I've never written for television before, but you need anyone to write an episode? Just call me because I'm ready to go. And Frost's answer was, great, come write the third. It was a lucky break. And um, Peyton absolutely considers this particular story a lucky break because it was an episode about death. It was about um, a full thing. He just needed to focus on characters responding to that. Um, in quotes, he says, the best episodes of television that you write are ones that have so that have a sort of thesis and have a kind of idea behind it. And he just ran with this. Um, the process of writing itself when it's not <laughs> when it's not Frost and Lynch as a part of it, Mark Frost went through his and Lynch's story outline with each writer. And from there, you're given a lot of freedom within those scenes. After the writer finishes, Frost goes through the script and gives changes. And for this episode, per Harley, he uh, Peyton gave Josie a ton of dialogue on the Zhao Zeqing, known, uh, knowing full well that Frost would know best where to trim it down. As Peyton phrased it, Frost knew a little bit more about what was going to work than I did. So he was perfectly happy 
to have Frost on board making making his good work even better. So the end result is on April 26, 1990, led in by the Father Dowling Mysteries, where Tom Bosley is a priest solving crimes with Sister Steve, played by Tracy Nelson. That kind of shows right there the <laughs> the disparity once again of Twin Peaks versus everything else on network television. Twin Peaks this time gets a rating of 16.7 million viewers. And while that's under half of the pilot's 34.6, it's at least just over half of Cheers' 31.8. So you can see the slide it's not really looking great for twin peaks at the moment but um it's still holding its own against the juggernaut of the airways okay so we've looked into how this episode was made and now we're going to look at david lynch's final response or his previous final response from 1993 when he made the log lady intros for bravo when twin peaks was otherwise dead as a doornail margaret says there is a sadness in this world, for we are ignorant of many things. Yes, we are ignorant of many beautiful things, things like truth. So sadness in our ignorance is very real. The tears are real. What is this thing called a tear? There are even tiny ducts, tear ducts, to produce these tears, should a sadness occur. Then the day when the sadness comes. Then we ask, will the sadness which makes me cry, will the sadness that makes me cry my heart out, will it ever end? The answer, of course, is yes. One day, the sadness will end. So the first thing that sticks out to me here is that beautiful is equated with truth and ignorance with sadness. And it's in, uh, the sadness is actually in our ignorance, according to Margaret's words. To rephrase it, one day ignorance will be replaced with truth from understanding, from being a detective. Which, from a previous Log Lady intro, I've said means you take the time, you learn the reasons behind things by experiencing them through time. The other thing that sticks out from this intro is the tears are real. So the sadness takes time and our bodies are designed for this process. They're designed with the understanding in mind that tears need to happen and you need to do something with them. If it helps us while we wait through time for the pain to be replaced or expunged. So it gives us a chance to either push through it or, which Margaret doesn't actually say by name, but as Harley Payton considers it the entire thesis of this episode, it's the sadness is possibly ended by death. Yeah, Margaret doesn't say how the sadness will end, and Laura knows this end. It seems to be up to us to understand that death is a possibility and up to the characters if they can overcome their sadness or if they end it from death at the end. Either way, with death being the big theme this episode, it's nice that Lynch also riffed on that without mentioning the word. Okay, so now we've looked at the production history. We've looked at how Lynch felt about the episode after we weren't expecting to be able to get any more Twin Peaks. 
And now we're going to start looking at this episode by way of all the Twin Peaks mythology that we'll find within the show from the pilot all the way up through part 18 and then even in the final dossier. So the first question I want to look into is how is Cooper's investigative technique best suited to a town like Twin Peaks? And the first thing we're definitely going to notice is that the Red Room has its hooks in them now for sure, 100%. Um, you know, I mean, the first thing he says is break the code, solve the crime. And he's describing the process of his dream, which um, based on his Tibetan technique from from the previous episode, it's mind-body coordination, hand-in-hand with intuition. And in a certain way, it's kind of like stoicism, which I believe is um, you are doing your purpose and like you are you are so doing the thing you need to be doing that it just flows. It flows freely and easily. And you are you are your purpose. So, again, with the being a detective. His purpose here is he's taking the time. He's learning the reasons behind things by experiencing them across time. Um, Cooper is basically riding the energy from mysteries, and you're pushing secrets into the light. And that's basically Cooper's purpose and why we just kind of follow him on this. And I think why Harry and Lucy and everybody else just kind of follows him on this, too. The way Rathborn described it in this episode, she basically says, in a Jungian view, the psyche goes public, and that's where Cooper's clues come from. So she's all on this Jungian train, too, where Mark Frost was probably writing from and where um, where Harley Payton was at least incidentally writing from as well. So the actual scene has Cooper breaking down all the events that happen in the dream and he ends up using um he ends up using the pilot version of the events because lynch hadn't actually directed his version yet so um it it pretty much has everything in it and one of the details that absolutely stuck out for me is that while he's talking about um Mike cutting the arm off, you know, because of the the tattoo. He says the tattoo reads "Fire Walk with Me." So while you could hypothesize it's the um, the owl ring symbol or the 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 diamond with the little wings on top, the um, the little flash or Captain America style wings, um, you could think it could be that as his branding. But Cooper here says it read "Fire Walk with Me." So that's interesting that it's kind of tied in with the mark of the devil. Another thing I notice about this is how when Cooper says Mike vowed to be done and Bob vowed to kill again, um, was that an intentional parallel to how Mike said that he was done after Mike and Bobby met Leo in the woods at night? Huh. It's just the way things rhyme in this place. So anyway, after after Mike shoots Bob. Cooper starts saying this. Do you know where dreams come from? Acetylcholine neurons fire impulses into the forebrain. These impulses become pictures. The pictures become dreams. But no one knows why we choose these particular pictures. After that, he describes the red room portion of the dream. But 
I'm thinking of another one. There's a there's another log lady intro that we talked about where ideas are like men, but pictures are basically rendered ideas. So it's again kind of associating that these um these impulses are part of your brain and then they become things. They become characters in the red room almost. Um it really it really feels like it's getting more codified that these dream characters are at least ideas brought to life. Okay, so the next question we're going to look into is what things are surfacing in Twin Peaks? So it's a script that ponders death, and there's all these characters reacting to it in various ways. And, um, you know, obviously we're going to get to Laura and Bobby later because they've got a little bit uh, meatier role this time. But there's so many other townsfolk that are that are reacting to it. And while they're doing that, things are coming to the surface, like whether it's um, plot relevant details like Norma's husband, Hank coming up for parole or Leo's rap sheet and then Shelly will vouch for him if you if you ask her. You know, it's like we're, we're learning more about Leo that way. And um, yeah, like there, there's there's plot stuff like that all over the place. Along with, uh, I'll I'll um, just take a quick tangent with um, with Leo's rap sheet. We get Cooper both saying ducks on a lake, which is you know those random little observations of the town that um, you know Cooper just falling more and more in love with Twin Peaks, and also you're lying, which he says to Leo here, and he'll say again through Dougie um, about um, Anthony Sinclair over in season three. Yeah, so I've said Mark Frost is a young Ian, and they're all into dream analysis. Like, they um, they look into the symbols and the archetypes of things within dreams, and they kind of allow the truth to rise up to the surface. And you kind of, um, you kind of integrate all those details together to get better understanding of yourself. And, I mean, you can kind of see that in a in a more metaphorical way of all the details here um as people either kind of wake up into themselves a little bit more or um get closer to being able to do that or really the plot itself is kind of coming into that focus too and we really are supposed to use this mystery like we're integrating all the things together into an answer one day and because cooper is really good at that of about noticing all these details and getting to a truth we see big ed lose a bet because um because cooper figures out right away that ed and norma are interested in each other let's say and audrey in particular is revealed by cooper you know the very first thing we get is the same twin peaks theme song is playing it's it's the super pleasant vibe it's like really early in the morning the great northern is completely lit up we've got the twin peaks theme playing it it just feels like super blissed out and audrey is no different she is definitely blissed out while she's waiting to love ambush cooper you know she wants to like give him the the best impression of her as she possibly could and um it's it's a great scene and she's great in it, but Cooper already knows that this is not the mindset to survive in the darkness. And because she gives this um, this note about one eye jacks, you know, it's like 
it's like how he said to James the other episode, James, what kind of dangerous game are you playing? You know, it's like he wants to protect these people that are super positive and in in this like frequency that like doesn't see darkness. And um the the one eye jacks card obviously is foreshadowing her already planned arc in one eye jacks. So it's almost like Cooper knows that that path is coming for her. As far as Rathborn says, um, everyone believed Audrey and Dale would become a couple. The kids were an innocence of America, and that innocence was seducing Cooper's innocent side. So again, that's kind of saying, you know, right here, Audrey is definitely seen as innocent. And I mean, okay, so <laughs> Ben Horn, you know, he, uh, Audrey even says he named the department star after himself. Um, Audrey needs a male role model badly. And she's kind of like <laughs> Cooper's imprinted on her. But I think it's more about being a male role model than it should be for romance. Um, you know, especially considering the age difference that back in 1990, uh, nobody was considering terrible. But anyway, right here, Dale is actually using Audrey's attitude toward him to his absolute advantage. You know, he compliments her on her perfume. And that right-handed slant indicates a romantic nature, a heart that yearns. Be careful. So he's considering the um, the feelings he has for her, but he's also kind of, you know, trying to get to the bottom of the investigation. Um, so she um, she gives him the uh, the more details about Laura, more about One Eye Jacks, and um, that Audrey knows about it. Uh, he knows that he knows now that Laura worked at the perfume counter. And um, basically, if he can get the information out of Audrey that easily, she doesn't have enough skills to protect herself from the dangers that she's like leaning toward dabbling in. And um, he definitely has a fondness for her, which you can see pop up later at the funeral when he kind of smiles at her. Okay, so coming back to Johnny Horn now. He is, he's kind of surfacing at this point. We see um, Johnny removing his headdress himself after being coaxed by Jacoby to do it. Um, first of all, it's, to me, it seems kind of like what the golden shovels thing is going to end up being for Jacoby. So, like, even though he admitted last episode that he was checked out from this whole thing, um, he is he is helping Johnny, even if it's like because Laura woke him up or whatever. Um, he is um, he's helping Johnny, but Johnny is accepting the help and he's actually listening to someone. Uh, maybe it's because uh, of the connection with Laura. Laura unlocked Jacoby. Laura unlocked Johnny. Um but Johnny actually does something for himself, which is a huge lesson with the golden shovels, um, as far as the metaphor goes. You know, basically, um, something happens to you, you recognize that something happened, and then you start to do something about it, or you don't. In this case, Johnny is actually doing it by taking away the thing that's covering him up. I mean, there's the association with... Um, with the native Americans who at that point were kind of, um, coming up in the culture to be, 
seen as, you know, it's like, hey, we oppressed these people. We actually uh, took their land. You know, it's like the 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 world in the United States was starting to reckon with the fact that um, colonialism did this. Uh, so, yeah, Johnny Horn is um, wearing that sort of disguise to kind of um, show that he's also that kind of, um, you know, like disconnected, oppressed sort of person, like a, a, an an overrun person who doesn't really um, fit in the same frequency as the world in progress. Um, how Audrey actually sees this happen, though, um, she's going in between the walls. And she's, um, I mean, you know, we, we get more of this later with the hum from the Great Northern that Ben and uh, Beverly are looking for in season three. Um, and later on in season two, we get a hum and the idea that, um, that souls like Josie's can be trapped in the wood in this place. So here's another way that... Um, that Audrey is sort of in between worlds again, except in the worldly way. Um, she's, she's able to see this in between story happening with Johnny Horn and Johnny being kind of in between states too, and covered up by the lodge spacey sort of thing. Um, it's, it's interesting to me how um, how Sylvia and Ben are talking like off camera. So like they're not even being seen by Johnny yet. You can hear them talking about uh, Ben says, keep indulging him. Nothing will change. And that really fits in with the, the golden shovels thing too. You know, it's like if you keep indulging and, you know, I'm looking at Ed with Nadine for primary case number one throughout the series. Um, if you keep indulging the people that are hiding in this dreamy delusion, like they don't have a chance, but if you can offer them help, then they do have a chance, which we see with Jacoby. Um, the problem for the horns is that they are helping Johnny by giving them somebody else. They're not helping them personally. They're just throwing money at a problem, which, um, which is one major thematic reason why Johnny's not going to be able to get too far um, under the current circumstances. And speaking of Jacoby, he admits how checked out he's been to Cooper this episode at the gravesite. Um, Laura reached him. Otherwise, before that, he just didn't care. Um, it it does foreshadow his evolution and doc to Doctor. <laughs> it does foreshadow his evolution to Doctor Amp. Um, and I'm using the Doctor Amp we see in Final Dossier rather than the one that we see in season three, because in season three it's kind of ambiguous because he actually does end up helping Nadine, but they kind of frame him as almost a charlatan too. But in final dossier, we find out that um, him living in the shack is no, um, is no mistake because, you know, he's raking in money. He's actually doing things, but he's all for intrapersonal alchemy. And most of the money he makes, he donates to charities and whatnot. 
So that's the kind of Jacoby arc that I'm going to be focusing on mostly throughout the series. Although I will look into the fact about him being a possible charlatan. And just like Jacoby, I'm going to be keeping track of Nadine the same kind of way throughout the series. Um, in this case, we see how um, the night before, Nadine felt a real huge connection with Ed because she probably coaxed him into bed and everything else. Um, she, um, she basically admits the feelings that she's had. Um, she tells Ed the story of... Uh, um, you know, of them in high school, you know, she's the little brown mouse. And um, she she always thought that Ed and Norma were, was this great looking couple. And um, but she dreams big anyway and gets Ed. Um, you know, it's like if, if you would just notice me, you know, it's like I know I know we could be happy forever and all that. It's it's like she's um, she's kind of projecting her dreams of of like, you know, like she's kind of like sending a delusion into the world. You know how Cooper says he's a strong sender. I'm absolutely convinced that Nadine is also a strong sender. Um, and it could have been a more tender scene, but Rathborn didn't realize quite how big Ed was at that point. So she kind of let him be this colder character and it ends up being, um, a regret on his side, which kind of adds to the delusion. I mean, it feels like a regret because he's like, uh, you bet. You know, it's like, uh, she says, love me. And he says, you bet. And then he pivots over to the, the trinkets, which is kind of like a possible sign of like, you know, Nadine keeping her, her, the sides of herself kind of like cordon off from each other. And like, you know, like these trinkets sort of represent that sort of thing. And so he, he talks about that stuff in Nadine that she kind of keeps, um, that, that side of herself that likes the trinkets. Uh, so he's, he's talking to her about that. And then she goes in about, you know, little brown mouse and everything. Um, also, kind of a weird thing to show that she's not quite in step with the world at this point. Um, she doesn't recognize James and this is actually a trend. She's like, who are you? Like she never quite figures out what's going on outside of the house and the life that she's built with Ed. So Nadine can talk about her past with, um, how she and Ed started. And, um, Another one who can talk about things in in this episode is Josie. I mean, she admits her fear to to Harry at the end of the pilot. You know, like she she can finally admit that she has fear there, but like she doesn't go into specifics. In this episode, she's admitting that Ben and Catherine are out to get her and they're trying to take the mill from her and everything, which is all true. But then she can only produce one ledger instead of two, so she can't give automatic proof to to harry that this is happening um and it's it's really fitting because she's only telling harry one half of her story here um she's she's protecting herself and she's keeping her own complicitness out of this you know she's um she's essentially using harry like you know she has feelings for him she loves him to the best of her ability yet here she is um using him to protect herself from this this web that she's caught herself in and um 
to to finish that off, uh, to finish the metaphor off, they they basically end up uh, looking away from her problems and make out while we hear Catherine scolding Pete about snooping after she was snooping herself. So yeah, there's always, you know, if if you're if you're able to reveal something in Twin Peaks, usually it takes a while before you can reveal the whole thing. So in keeping with the way the characters have been revealing themselves, there's also something a little more widespread going on. There's, um, it's, um, it's giving me reason to, to ask this question. What are the two Twin Peaks revealing themselves? Because, I mean, there's, there's more than just people. Like, I mean, people live in this place. Um, there's, um, there's this weather pattern, you know, the fog that uh, Tamara Preston talks about that kind of like gives different stories over the top of what's really there. Um, and this fog covers over truth in a lot of ways. It covers over the true story, like the the objective story, and it becomes subjective with this fog. And it's it's I've I've said it before. It's like a weather pattern. You know, it's like when you when you live in this fog, you just kind of know how to navigate it. And um, yeah, so you know how to navigate it and it's just part of it. You know, it's part of your experience. And you probably even experience the fact, if you're a Twin Peaks resident, of these two sort of um these two sort of worldviews and the way of seeing the world, the positive and the negative like taking shape and um the way it ends up taking shape here is um well one of the ways that it takes shape here is between the the fight in the um I and mean, one of the ways that we see it is the um the autopsy scene where it's doc hayward versus albert um and in one way it looks like it's compassion versus science you know don't discharge or or, or Doc Hayward wants, you know, Albert to discharge Laura's body for the funeral. And, um, you know, we have Albert being all hard nosed about it. Don't disrupt the investigation. Um, you know, you've got, well, I mean, th this is kind of off to the side, but Ben being the politician and staring at Laura, I never even noticed that. Or, or I, I haven't noticed that for years where he's just like staring right into her face. And like, that's just, that is creepy, and that right there is foreshadowing that Ben is a major suspect in this. Um, but um, yeah, so we have we have Albert, and we have Doc Hayward, and um, the only compromiser not even not even Ben Horn can pull this off, but Cooper is the only compromiser. Um, he like what ends up happening is things get a little bit too strong. And Harry punches Albert. You know, it's like the first physical altercation. And from that point, that's when Cooper figures out enough is enough. And he basically throws in this compromise that say, test results by noon, body to family then. And um, what, I mean, if if you break it down, okay, from Albert's point of view, he's refusing to deal with people who don't want to find the truth. He's, um, 
he he just wants to get the answers. You know, it's like a funeral can happen any old time, but answers can only happen for so long. And Doc is representing those who just want to get past this and find some closure. You know, he's he's the mercy aspect of things. Um, it ends up only making closure for the physical body and that sort of thing. And you would think he could come around to the idea that maybe you do want answers. But Doc Hayward is representing this town that likes to value wants over needs. Um, the town wants to bury Laura quickly. They want to essentially look away as soon as possible. Like in like in episode 17 with Leland's Wake, you know, it's like everybody immediately forgot the circumstances. I mean, that's from a practical point of view, because probably most of the actors didn't get the scripts to find out what happened in the in the killer reveal episode. But it also kind of shows a pattern, you know, it's like, don't find out the truth. Don't understand what really happened. Just bury the body. Um, you know, let, let the Twin Peaks fog do its work. You know, it's like the, the weather's just going to do what it does. And it always kind of makes things a little bit easier to deal with. Uh, let's forget this ever happened. Leave the answers behind. So in this case, I'm siding with Albert in the goal. But. I mean, he does get slugged because he has a lack of empathy and compassion with this. You know, it's like he wasn't meeting Doc halfway. He was just like, what are you doing? You're you're an idiot. Let, let's find out the truth. It's right here. Uh, and he will develop that that empathy and that compassion the further we go. Um, when Harley Payton stops writing his, you know, acerbic, mean, uh, mean-leaning dialogue, you know, Robert Engels comes in and gives that one speech where he's, um, you know, he's one with King and Gandhi and you know, he's on that road. And, <laughs> you know, so like they, they end up softening him later from a um, from a plot perspective, because viewers would get, you know, they, they would find that guy old. You know, it's like, oh, my God, just stop coming to town. You're mean to everybody. Um, so from a from a practical point of view we get an Albert that is also being affected by this fog eventually. And he does loosen up and he does stop trying to be all job all the time. And he does start seeing people as people, which is good. Um, and, you know, eventually he does find out that life has meaning for these people. Um, and in that way, with Cooper saying life has meaning here, um, it kind of does for now. But can he only see the positively charged responses to the facts? You know, it's like he can see that the murder happened, but I mean, the murder always physical things happen all the time. And it's just a matter of do you see it through a positive point of view, a negative point of view, or kind of a balance between? And, um, in this way, I think he's only kind of seeing the positive side of things the way Doc Hayward has uh, presented it. Um, Cooper loves this place. You know, it's like he talks about he talks about the the feeling of maple syrup colliding with ham and all. And, um, you know, like he he talks about real estate. And, you know, Judge Sternwood calls him out in a few episodes. You know, it's like, well, if heaven... Um, require you know if, if heaven has like multiple homicides and da 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 you're in luck so um yeah cooper has this very positive leaning delusion about the town at this point 
But it's also possible in a way that Cooper is seeing both sides of the situation. Um, there's the scene later with, um, with the bookhouse boys, you know, being introduced to the story. Um, it starts out with five traffic lights. And um, I, I don't think Tina Rathborn really understands the full significance of the traffic lights. But, I mean, she puts it in here. Um, there's five of them. One of them turns green before it goes into the diner scene where Shelley's making fun of Leland falling on the casket. Um, so it's it's interesting how... Um, I know Caleb Deschanel had a, a thing about that too, where it's like the choices they make as directors, you know, it's like, they don't know the full story, but he, he found it really interesting that, um, you know, it's like they're, they're accidentally adding to the mythology as they go. And, uh, yeah. So this is one of those things with the, with the traffic lights kind of being part of, part of a scene again. So after we see Shelley, we see the diner booth with, with Dale. Ed, Hawk, and Harry. And um, it seems almost like um, Dale wasn't going to get into the into the inner circle. You know, it's like Ed's very skeptical of him. But then we have um, all these um, these deductive clues that uh, that Dale uses. And um, I mean, Cooper calls out Ed on the relationship you know it's like hey ed how long have you been in love with norma and that seems like uh cooper passed a test here um so they tell him about the sting operation on jacques renault and we find you know the 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 negative side of twin peaks again being associated with the drug trade um so we find out that ed's part of the operation and um you know, Cooper, he's he's all like, yeah, I didn't know you were a deputy, basically saying, like, I, I understand something's going on here and I'm calling you out on it, but I'm not I'm not I'm not calling it a problem. So anyway, we get to see. Another side of Twin Peaks kind of rising out right now, it's like all the all the stuff I've been describing is weather patterns. Um, it's kind of getting defined here. It's getting a shape. It's getting. um it's getting um, pinned down on whether it's a positive or a negative frequency that we're being talked about here. Um, Harry, and, and I want to read this whole thing because it's all important. Harry says, Twin Peaks is different, a long way from the world. You've noticed that. That's exactly the way I like it. But there's a back end of that that's kind of different, too. Maybe that's the price we pay for all of the good things. There's a sort of evil out there, something very, very strange in these old woods. Call it what you want, a darkness, a presence. It takes many forms, but it's been out there for as long as anyone can remember, and we've always been here to fight it. Men before us, men before them, more after we're gone. And then Cooper interrupts with a secret society. Later on in Secret History of Twin Peaks, Frost equates this with the Masons and, you know, other kind of secret societies that seem to be, you know, fighting the good fight against the darkness. Um, and, you know, he put, Frost puts a pre-Western expansion. That's how far before this it's happening. Um, and then it reminds me of, like, you know, the 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 evil, you know, call it what you want, a darkness, a presence. It takes many forms. It takes many forms kind of, again, reminds me of ideas like men. So like these forms 
it it's kind of like the the darkness that fires into the world take the shape of this evil you know whether it's through drugs that they're investigating or whether it's um in the shape of you know a long-haired man that inhabits uh lawyers you know like there's all sorts of ways that you could kind of see things taking shape in this town and it reminds me of how the woods uh kind of take their own shape too i mean you've got glastonbury grove um you've got the place where the fireman has his portal you know it's like there's there's different ways to go into other worlds in there i mean the dutchman's uh in um in season three there's all sorts of things about the woods themselves that are physically also kind of multiple realms i mean bob comes out through glastonbury grove at the end of episode 27 i mean it's just yeah yeah there's there's a lot and um it seems like we have these guys that can transition frequencies um it's the 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 bookhouse boys seem to be able to see this negative uh, this negative frequency all by itself and also be part of the world and it kind of reminds me of how um there there was this thing foreshadowed in the access guide that we'll go into later it's called the passion play and it's basically this um you know it, it's um it's a tour guide book and, you know, they talk about the Passion Play being this really mysterious event that happens, like, every five years or so. And um, it it's really heavily implied that it's like, you know, they, they make it seem like it's, you know, like a camping event or something like that that happens overnight one night uh, randomly. And um, at the end, you know, there, there's this ceremony where, um, where um, you get uh, a sword and a shield and, like, all these things that end up uh you know it's it's kind of like a, a replenish the land sort of th- a ceremony and um yeah they they basically sell it like that but we know deep down based on things that will happen in episode 29 that it's probably closing off the lodge again or something like that um but we don't get to hear about that because that's all in the negative frequency and the people in the town only see it like it's some weird event. And, you know, they know about the mysterious bookhouse boys by name, but like they don't know anything about them. So like the secret society works in plain sight, yet here it is kind of tucked away in one of the weather patterns of Twin Peaks that you can't see unless you're in it. And one of these places that you would see but not know what it is, I mean, the bookhouse all by itself, it's just basically a used bookstore as far as I can tell. And, um, you know, here they go into it. And Cooper goes willingly, by the way, into this um, into this place. And he starts questioning Bernard Renault, who has been secretly apprehended, not through uh, law enforcement means. Um, and then we finally meet Jacques Renault while this is happening and um he sees a red light on the top of the roadhouse blinking and that red light which has been up to this point kind of associated with negative things is protecting its own here and um jacques knows to call up leo who's wearing a chevron sweater so we have imagery here protecting the negative side of twin peaks okay anyway here we are and we're about uh, we're almost an hour into this recording and 
we haven't even talked about the funeral yet. And I'm going to be talking around that with, um, I'm going to be talking around that for sure with the question, what kind of presence is Laura Palmer? And I know I ask it every single episode, but it's absolutely necessary every episode so far. Um, So what do we learn here? Uh, First, we get details from Audrey. We weren't friends, but I understand her better than the rest. And that ties her into Elle's uh, idea that the horns are kind of a placeholder for Laura and her family relationships. Uh, we, um, we also find out from Audrey that she works at the perfume counter, which we know from before that that's how Ronette or that's where Ronette entered the story too, because she also worked at the perfume counter. So we're connecting victims together, even though Ronette gets sidelined again. And the, the sidelining of Ronette is a huge problem with me as far as, um, as the story goes, because I mean, we're great at giving Laura agency in life. And yet here we are, um, every single time Ronette comes up, she's basically the victim and we're investigating something else. So yeah, not, not really cool, but you know, for the time, um, one out of two is, uh, pretty amazing. Later on, we get Maddie's arrival. Um, we see Leland uh, getting an injection, like probably some sedative for before the funeral. And um, he's watching Invitation to Love, which parallels hints that Maddie could have like these ghost-like properties uh, or that like, at least thematically, she is completely invoking Laura. Um, you know, we have Leland being drugged. So, you know, he's got a fog over him. Uh, over how he perceives the world. Yeah. Um, I suspect that this kind of invitation to love, the way they used it here, how it's so on the nose, is probably the stuff that Lynch liked less than the ambiguous stuff. Um, but as far as it goes here, it really does frame the scene seriously. Um, Jared, the the main character from Invitation to Love right then, he's writing a suicide note to his daughters. And um, we first see Maddie um, on screen. You know, it's like we hear her. And then when we see her, um, we hear um, Jade interrupting Jared writing his note. She's basically saying, Daddy, it's Jade. So a daughter shows up to the grieving father and um, or the, the father who's in pain. And here we have a girl showing up um, in front of a father who's in pain. Um, and like Leland asks her twice, Madeline, Maddie, is it you? And like the most she does is a head nod. And then she says, uncle Leland, I am so sorry. So like, she's not even saying yes to his question. It's, it's just like, it, it's told ambiguously, even though like we get the answer, it's told ambiguously. So it's still got that kind of fogginess to it. Um, as far as like practical clues for the story, like there, there were Usenet viewers and like other people talking that, uh, Maddie was probably Laura in disguise. Uh, and they come up with the idea because of a few things, uh, the, the vert the vertigo connection all by itself is something you know it's like they they see maddie ferguson and uh ferguson is the the name of um 
uh, Scotty Ferguson, uh, um, the 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 male role in Vertigo, uh, Jimmy Stewart, um, and then um, Maddie was the name of Kim Novak's character, and um, you know you put them together, it's like they just liked. Um, Harley Payton basically said in the Essential Wrapped in Plastic by John Thorne that um, it, you know, people. He he was really glad that people went as deep as they did because it was really interesting. But yeah, you know, it's like we uh, the the viewers overdid it because as deep as as Peyton and they were thinking, they just liked the movie Vertigo, so they took the name. <laughs> In this case, just one more happy accident. But um, the other reason why I think um, you know besides the fact that Cheryl Lee is playing Maddie Ferguson is that that end where like she's crying hard um you know is it cheryl lee crying for laura is it maddie crying for laura or is it kind of like the part of the part of cheryl lee that is laura crying for herself you know like there's so many meta vibes about how when she embraces leland like how how that crying could be taken so next up we get albert's forensics report it shows that uh, cocaine was in her diary, and it's also in Laura's toxicology report, which means that Laura had a habit. The, the sometimes my arms bend back connection to Cooper's dream. Um, Laura was bound by two twines, one in this place and one in another place, and that's what makes Cooper think uh, sometimes her arms bend back. Um, there's the pumice soap that um, the killer the killer using he washes his hands which you know anybody who's seen fire walk with me knows exactly what i'm referencing there uh before he leaned in for a kiss like this it's just so creepy so the he washes his hands he keeps a clean clean house like that and then he has a relationship with laura where he feels like kissing her is a uh, totally reasonable answer so he's probably the third man is the thought. Um, then there's animal bites and scratches, which will lead into the Waldo clues. Um, and then the, um, the, the plastic that was from her stomach that still needs to be analyzed that will turn into a plot point in the uh, poker chip piece. Yeah, so not much of um, what kind of person Laura is, but more so clues to how it was when she was murdered. On to the funeral. So as far breaking down the funeral scene, we have the pastor speaking. We have Bobby lashing out at the whole town's culpability. He gets in a fight with James, and then Leland jumps on the casket. Uh, so breaking it down, um, first of all, the the access guide has um, has the Palmers as Lutheran. So I looked into that a little bit, and basically the family saves eulogies for the final repost, and instead of a eulogy, the pastor shares details about the deceased life during the worship. Throughout their overall message, they'll talk about the importance of grace and eternal life before God. And um, then then later on, we find out that, I mean, <laughs> and I also found out that to talk about one's accomplishments boastfully is a sign of disrespect in front of the church. So we get, we get the pastor talking about who believes shall never die. So, you know, like the, uh, 
the importance of eternal life before God that's mentioned. Um, and then, yeah, he doesn't really talk about accomplishments. He just talks about the life of the deceased. And, um, he talks about how, um, there's a special love for the headstrong and the bold and that that's the kind of love that Laura received. And, uh, she's described as being bright, beautiful, and charming. Um, the, the, the shining light that comes from Laura in various aspects, uh, including in part two of season three. Uh, but, um, the word that, uh, the pastor gives her is most of all impatient. And, um, that makes a lot of sense with everything about Laura. I mean, she's trying to push through time as quickly as she can uh, to fit it all in. And obviously we learn more about that, especially in things like the diary. Um, but, you know, it checks out with what we know about her at this point, too. Uh, so he says, I'm in. Johnny Horn says, I'm in in his way. And then of course, Bobby just absolutely rips into things here. Um, I'm going to read the whole thing here and then come back to Bobby because he's got his own section this week. But here he says, what are you looking at? What are you waiting for? You make me sick. You damn hypocrites make me sick. Everybody knew that she was in trouble, but we didn't do anything. All you good people. You want to know who killed Laura? You did. We all did. And pretty words aren't going to bring her back, so save your prayers. She would have laughed at them anyway. And then after that, James uh, launches at him, and he launches at James, and there's this big slowdown. Um, and then Leland dives on in the casket. Um, so, yeah, while this is all happening, while the fight's happening, um, Leland's on the casket. And Sarah says, you know, don't ruin this, too. And it got me thinking, what is two? Is it because the funeral's already blown up by a fight that um, Leland jumping on the casket, uh, you know, like the you can't even lower Laura down into the ground that way? Um, is that the two? Probably not. Um, is it more that Leland has done in the past? You know, does he have a history of all this kind of crap where he just melts down and ruins things? Probably. And is it about how? he ruins things with Laura. You know, it's like we've already seen him break the picture in episode two. Um, is this another thing? You know, it's like, is he ruining something else with Laura? One thing the the Back to the Double R podcast mentions, um, they, they, made a, they made a neat uh, turn of phrase where, you know, things go haywire and the casket's going up and down. It's like, it's not accepting Laura into the ground. You know, it's, it's rejecting Laura's death. And I think in a way that's probable, but is it also not accepting Leland's presence in her death? Is it not accepting, does the casket go haywire because Leland has introduced himself yet again? Is it his presence? Is it his past actions? Is it his interference that, that the machines are in, are rejecting here. Thematically, there's a lot of stuff to to go with that are all great answers. From here, I'm going to move forward a little bit to the scene between Hawk and Dale at the uh, at the Great Northern near the end. Um, 
they talk about, do you believe in the soul? And um, Hawks says several. And then he talks about a Blackfoot legend where waking souls that give life to the mind and body, a dream soul that wanders far away places, land of the dead. And then Cooper asks him, is that where Laura is? And Hawk just says, Laura's in the ground, Agent Cooper. That's the only thing I'm sure of. And then they toast to Laura. So it leaves a lot of possibilities, but then, you know, anchoring it in the fact. You know, the only thing we know for sure is that she's dead and she's in the ground. You know, is she a waking soul? Is she a dream soul? Uh, there, there are so many um, implications here, especially considering Lodge Laura has already shown up. And, you know, over over the course of this podcast, we will look into many of them. But I find it really interesting that there's duality here and that it all rhymes in a certain way with Lodge Laura. And um, yeah, it, it's it's a good balance between the facts and the metaphysical. And that scene ends when they take down a melting down Leland who um, just wants people to dance with him. Um, you know, they, they put on a jazz song. There's the song and dance connections to Leland yet again. Um, and then they say, we're going to take you home. And then he says, home, like Dougie does in season three. Um, there's, a, there's a thing with, with home just over the course of this whole this whole series where like you don't you know it's like home is a place where the secrets live uh just ask leland or it's a place where you can feel secure and um it's kind of a meditation on what is home and what can home be for you as and, and you know like they, they ask almost every single character what that is but of course for leland that home kind of ends on an ominous note because the episode ends on the traffic light just sitting there shining red into a darkness but even though the episode ends i've still got some stuff to talk about here because because i have to ask who is bobby briggs so before this we know he's a jerk we know he's part of the drugs situation we know that he smokes at home uh regardless of what his parents tell him or his father tells him i should say and in this episode we get a scene with his father we get a scene at the funeral and um you know there there's all this stuff that you think about now where he turns into the police officer in the future uh right here He's the public but bad relationship with Laura. And then James is the secret but good relationship with Laura. And um, you can kind of see, like, when they attack each other, there's this slowdown that happens. And slowing down kind of puts things on a negative frequency, as we'll see in the future. Like, you know, like the, the, the murder of Maddie has a whole bunch of slowing down things. You know, like the 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 weather pattern of a negative energy in Twin Peaks kind of like makes the perception slow. And uh, Rathborn didn't do that for any other reason besides she didn't like the scene at normal speed. It didn't move her enough. But then when she slowed it down, it ended up feeling absolutely right. And it did resonate with her. He's kind of the bad guy here in a lot of ways, uh, or seen as the bad force for Laura. Um, but, We'll see as we go on that Laura did this to him. 
Um, Ali Sharaba in her in her article, Bobby Briggs and Laura Palmer, a love story. Um, this is a Bobby that we get after years of Laura using him and humiliating him. And he let her control him. And he ends up being closed off from where he was when he began the relationship with Laura, which uh, which Ali described as a young man who was kind and gentle and in touch with his emotions. So um, she goes on later in the article to say he doesn't excuse himself from this, that um, that, you know, like when when he says we all did, when when uh, when he says we all killed her, basically, you know, it's like he's he doesn't excuse himself from this, but he simply cannot stand by and watch the funeral proceed without forcing everyone to acknowledge their own culpability in Laura's death. It's an exercise in self-flagellation of sorts and a way for him to let out all the emotions he's bottled up for so long. But it's honest. Bobby is not wrong when he tells the priest that Laura would have laughed at his prayers. And um, Ali Sharaba basically goes on to say that, um, that Bobby is essentially another victim of Bob, even if it's kind of a bank shot way through. Um, we will get to his emotional availability later. And we kind of see his emotional intelligence now, except that he doesn't necessarily realize what he feels until it's already happening. Um, you know, it's like, it's, it's just like how in, um, in the future we'll see, um, you know, Shelly says, I love you to him. And he says, I guess I love you too. It's like, he's very much in the moment and he, he knows things, but he doesn't know that he knows them until he looks right then. And then he'll be just as surprised by his feelings as the rest of us. Uh, Self-reflection will come later for Bobby, but now he's still been beaten by Laura. And this is kind of a breakthrough moment for him. Um, essentially, we have... We have a guy who... Well, let's, let's go back to his relationship with his dad. Um, uh, Sharaba also wrote a, a, an article about the complicated relationship between Bobby Briggs and Major Briggs. And she says each of them in their own way is filled with secrets. And for various reasons, they are completely unable to communicate, which we definitely see earlier in the episode. And um, I wonder, was was the Major queuing up Bobby to have this revelation about himself? Um, he starts out by saying, uh, in, in this episode, Briggs says, responsibility to the dead, to our own actions, with ceremony, understanding, learning to carry on without them. Uh, and basically, don't be afraid of the funeral. Don't be afraid of death. You know, show respect. And yeah, it's, um, it's something that all makes sense, except that his approach for delivering that message to Bobby didn't quite work because they are on different frequencies here. And, um, you know, this is when Bobby says, afraid, I'm going to turn it upside down, which is an inversion again. It's it's backwards energy. Um, it's it's from a guy who is still literally smoking right there, even if it's a filthy habit. And, um, you know, he's being flippant with a crucifix imagery before that. And um, it's it's just interesting that um, that Bobby is still kind of in this this negative way of seeing the world, but he's got a way out in a way. 
Um, the major's wish for Bobby to have closure and healing turning into an outburst of learning. I mean, it, it, it turns into an outburst of learning. He learns, Bobby learns about himself and he's able to express something, which at this point he's not built for anymore. Thanks to, uh, Laura just pushing on him. And we'll definitely look at that more with, uh, Bobby and Jacoby's upcoming scene in a few episodes, though from here forward, now that he's had the outburst, uh, Briggs has visions for Bobby that are frequent and, um, it kind of uncorks the bottle for Bobby in all the best ways possible. And, you know, it's, it's not just us liking his character. He ends up, you know, it's, it's, it's one moment at a time leading to the guy who ends up, uh, being good for his daughter and, uh, being a, an upstanding lawman in society. All right. Well, that's all I've got for now. All that's left to be said is you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit Ruminations Radio Network for additional great shows such as Cinephile Hissy Fits and Ruminations from the Red Room. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at tvobsessive.com. And if you want to be part of our monthly mailbag Patreon episodes, send your burning questions and passionate feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week as we cover episode four, the fifth overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams.